0: Deirdre's right. Greed is bad. So we can get that done with. I mean the truth is, I mean I could tell you all the reasons why greed is bad and I'll I'll tell you a little bit about that, but we all know greed is bad. And uh, I'm not I'm not so interested today in helping you to see all the ways that greed and your soul as I am going to paint a picture of you of something to, of something to, Is it me? Me, isn't it? Is that better? Okay. Gently put it in my pocket. It's my pocket. Means get a new mic. (laughs) And now you'll learn the secret of what you have to do to hide your mic cord. It has to go back behind your sweater. And so what I have you focus on is how nice my sweater is. (laughs) My wife bought for me last week because I had a hole in the other one I wore. (laughs) 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 Oh no, I'm just fine. Are we on? Yeah, I'm not going to put it through my sweater, though. Obviously. Okay, and we're back. And allow me to play with my microphone for a moment. Okay. What I want to do instead is try to paint a, a the positive picture um, of what of what generosity can look like. And the, the beauty that God has for us, which which greed robs. And to do that, to start off, I, last week I went to see uh, Wake Forest play soccer. And for those of you not familiar with college soccer, Wake Forest is the is the is the undisputed king of college soccer. The last year's national champion. They're undefeated this year. And they're they're a, a marvelous looking team. And as we were watching them, I've seen them play. A, several different times but had really good seats we were close to the field and we're able to see things like that they're everyone in the field is fast i mean they are all fast they all have impeccable skill and they're all physical they're they're tenacious they go after the ball hard and so you look at a collection of 11 players all of whom have a high level of skill who are physically fast strong and who appear to be determined but that's not what's most impressive What's most impressive is the fact that these players who have every right to be full of themselves share the ball in a way that you seldom see at any level. And, and I was struck at one point, their, their, their striker, this guy named Marcus Tracy, striker plays up front. You know. Anyway, their striker, Marcus Tracy, got the ball at the top of the box, so he's 18 yards away. He's a very good player. He can beat the defender, he can take a shot, and as the ball came to his feet, I saw midfielder come running behind him full speed, and then Marcus Trace just went like that. Just pulled it back. The guy hit it full force with nobody on him. Just missed. A couple minutes later, ball comes into the box again. It comes across to somebody's chest. He could trap it and shoot it, but he's covered. What he does, he traps it straight to another player who hits it first time into the goal. I mean, it was Stunning the beauty with which they played as players of extravagant skill and expertise shared the ball. What struck me about it is, I started thinking, well, how did that guy know to go running full force behind Marcus Tracy? Because he knew he'd share it. He he knew when the ball went to him, it wouldn't be a black hole where it would end there. And the thing to me that comes comes out of that is every one of those players had every right. They've probably been told all their life how special they are. And they could hoard their skill. They could take all their skill, all their talent, all their speed, and they could use it and they could keep it to themselves. And what makes them not simply a team of talented players, but a team at the college level the likes of which I've never seen, is their willingness to be generous with the ball. And it was beautiful. I mean, I sat there watching it just thinking, what a a beautiful game to watch when it's played that way. And I've seen other teams play with a lot of skill where you just want to say, just pass the ball. And the guy beats one guy and he beats two guys and he beats three guys because he's good, but then he can't beat four guys and he loses it. And it's just kind of ugly because the skill has been hoarded. God wants us to live beautiful lives. Lives the likes of which other people look on and go, that's just gorgeous to behold. Look at that. Beautiful lives are lives that don't hoard what we have. That open it up and are able to share it freely from the heart. You see, greed is a life killer. Greed is the inordinate desire for stuff, for money, for possessions. Greed is the love of money. See, there's this verse in, in a, a book that Paul writes. Paul's one of the early leaders of the church and he's writing to his, his young apprentice, Timothy, and he writes this verse to him where it's, it's often misquoted. What he says is, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's often shortened to money is the root of all evil. It's not what it says. It doesn't say that money is bad. It says the love of money. When our hearts set money first, oh, that's the root of all sorts of evil. What kind of evil? Well, the song by uh, Postal Service, there's a a little section in there that that really strikes me. The, The picture of what an excessive desire for money or for wealth can do to us. And, and this picture says, you can, you can explore within materialism as far as you want. You can go free-ranging within it. You may case the grounds from the Cascades to Puget Sound, but you're not permitted to leave. Materialism, greed, is a trap. It traps us unsuspecting. And we keep wondering how it's so. All surveys, all studies done on happiness show an alarming trend. Americans were happier 50 years ago. Significantly so. They would also say that's in spite of the fact that we have more stuff. Clearly, something's off. I say this not in the trite, sort of superficial way, but at a deeper level, God wants you to experience happiness happiness, a sense of contentment that's deeply rooted in the heart. And there's something about the course of our culture and what greed does to us that is killing that off. So what does it look like? What, is, what does greed actually look like? And what's the, what's the core problem in it? Well, There's this story that, that Jesus tells, and I'm going gonna, gonna to paraphrase it. If you, if you want to look it up later, it's in Luke chapter 12. Luke's one of the Gospels. Jesus, and, and here's, I'm going to, first I'm going to tell you the actual parable that Jesus tells, and then I'm going to go back and give you the context. The, the parable it goes like this. You said there was a guy, and he was, he was, a, he was a, you know, a farmer, you know, and he, he, was, he had a really, really good year. He had already been doing well, but then he had a banner year. His year was so good, he had no place to put all of his crops. He didn't have enough room to store all of his wealth. And so he said, what should I do? moment in the parable. What do I do? Ah, I know. I'll build bigger barns. I will store all of my stuff and then I will enjoy the fruits of my labor. Why not? I've earned it. I've worked hard. I will build the barns myself. I'm not looking for anyone's handout. This is my wealth and I'm, I'm, I'll store it. I'll build bigger barns and then I will eat drink, and be merry. Sounds like a decent plan. To which Jesus then ends the parable by saying, and then the next night he died. Wow, talk about burying somebody in the story, Jesus. The next night he died. Okay, and he says, so it is with those who were rich toward themselves but not rich towards God. And really, on the surface of it, you look at that parable and you think, wow, that's kind of intense. All he did is, you know, build some barns for his stuff that he earned. It was his, that he earned and wanted to relax. And Jesus says, yeah, that's not, that's not the way to go. It seems like a very, very harsh ending to his story. Then you back up into the context. Jesus had been teaching about priority, about where life is actually found and where it's not. And much of his teaching was counterintuitive and, and, it, was, and it was countercultural. You know, in the same way that Jesus is teaching on, on, on leadership. At, you know, at one point, he's teaching his followers about servanthood and, and why that's really the way to not... Don't seek for the first place. Seek to serve. That's what real leadership looks like. And his followers go, that's a great... I really like that, what you're saying that about that whole serving thing, Jesus. But who gets to be first again? And can I be in a special seat? It's a, sort of the same way here. He's saying to the people, I want you to understand how, where life is really found. And in the midst of him teaching that, somebody yells out as he's teaching, Jesus... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. I I know all the stuff about living for the right things, but my brother is being stingy. Tell him to give me my money. And Jesus said, man, who made me the arbiter of your financial disputes? Be very careful. Be on guard against greed. Be on your guard. It mimics an ancient proverb in the book book of Proverbs where it says, be on your guard for your heart because out of the heart is the wellspring of life. And he says, be very careful. You're you're in dangerous ground right now. You know why? Because life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. That, that's the point. Then he tells the parable. Life is does not consist in the abundance of our possession. It is not where life will ever be found. The problem is at some core level we still think it is. That's why 50 years ago Americans were happier and they had less stuff because we have this intransigent notion in our heads that life is found. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know all that stuff about it. you know money can't buy me happiness but give me some more and let me try it out. Life is... <laughs> is found. We think somewhere deep down life is found. Come on. Forget the idealism. Life is found in the abundance of my possessions. And we think that for two reasons. One is security. I just want to be safe. I just want to be secure. And in a financial time like that, I mean, that ramps up much higher, doesn't it? I just, I just want to be safe. I don't want to run out. I'm going to build some bigger barns because, and I'm going to hoard it because I, don't, I just want to be safe. I want to be, there's nothing wrong with a desire for security, it's a natural desire. We want to be secure. The problem is we believe at a core level that our security is found in us hoarding what we get and us being very stingy about what we're willing to give out. Because in the end, we believe it's about us and only us. We're on our own. You see, the other picture of the Wake Forest soccer team is this. They understood they were on a team. They understood they weren't playing one-on-one. They understood they were connected to something bigger. And they understood beauty was found in their connection. Greed disconnects us from God and from humanity because greed says, I will love money. It will be first because I have to be secure and I will purchase my security. And little by little, we close off our heart. currently, I'm about to make what appears to be a political statement. As I do so, I will be careful in how I phrase this, and I will say it several different ways. And then afterwards, if I'm not clear, before I stand up to do the benediction, someone tell me, and I'll clarify it again. Most political campaigns because we believe life consists in the abundance of our possessions most political campaigns target greed they target the pocketbook I was a communist truly I know a little bit about communism and currently I am not making a political statement right or wrong I am saying that the McCain campaign would like you to believe that Obama is a socialist. I was a communist. Obama is not a socialist. Uh, Really, you you just have to understand, from a communist perspective, they're all raving right-wing lunatics. Seriously. And the phrase that's being used over and over again by the McCain campaign, and then I'm going to do the opposite side, so nobody thinks I'm taking a side. The phrase that's used over and over again in the McCain campaign is... He wants to share the wealth. And now he does it in in campaign speeches so that everybody says it wrong. He wants to share the wealth. And everybody goes like this. Uh "Aha, shit. He's after my hard-earned money. He's not getting mine. I'm not making any statement about economic policy. I'm minored in economics at Bucknell. I know nothing about economics. I am not making a statement about whether or not McCain or... I have opinions. I'm not making a statement about which either one is right. I'm saying that that campaign slogan targets greed. On the other side, the Obama campaign would tell you that if you make less than like a gazillion dollars, McCain doesn't care about you. He did not care about you. He only cares about the rich people. You middle class people, which we're all somewhere in there. You middle class people, you better be careful because McCain doesn't care about you at all. Grab my wallet. They're playing on greed. They're trying to disconnect you and make you feel like, I just, I just got to, you know what? Push comes to shove. Life does consist In my possessions, and I'm going to protect them. Because we think our security is found in us, greed gets a foothold. The other thing we think about money is that money will not only buy us happiness, it'll buy us an identity. We shop to become, we purchase who we think we want to be. We live, work, buy cars, buy clothing, tinged by this sense that life and identity is a commodity to be bought and sold. Our culture is bought into that deeply. And so we say, okay, yeah, yeah, life's not found in the abundance of my possessions, but you know what? It'll give me security and it'll allow me to have some sort of identity. And so we love money. And we protect ourselves. And in so doing, our heart gets more and more and more, closed off and dead. Because what Jesus was saying in that parable is, you you be really careful. If your heart goes there, it it dies off. And it's not ever what I had for you. I came to give you life, and life in abundance. I came to give you a free life. I came to give you a life where you did not have to worry about everything. I came to actually give you security and to give you identity so you could live free. You see, Jesus wanted a culture back then and still today who was desperately disconnected to understand that he was coming to give us life in himself, that in him there was fullness that our other ways of operating were false and they would close down our heart little by little. And I can almost see him saying that. He's going to be, be really careful. Your heart's shutting down. See, the reason why the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil because in the end, you can really only love one thing. That's really it. And what Jesus taught is, if you want to find life, you have to love God. That has to be first in your heart. If it's not first in your heart, you're following idols, and those idols will use you, and they will betray you. And there is only one God who will never use you and never betray you. If money becomes your idol, it will use you, and it will spit you back out, and it will never let you go. Because materialism and greed is armed to the teeth to keep you inside of it. He said, I would not have this for you. If God is not first in your life, you will always be taken advantage of by some other God. He is the one benevolent deity of all the other things we crown as God. And that's where beauty is found. And and we have moments where we sense that. We have moments where we sense that, that this, this protectionism and this fear and this purchase of an identity will, will never work. We know that and we keep going after it. And we have moments where we recognize there's something more. Those moments of connection with God are, are deeper. There's moments when we actually venture out when we didn't think we could and we give of ourselves financially. Those moments something happens. But they're far too few. few. And God wants to reorient that for us. You see, in the midst of this series, this is what we're doing. We're talking about seven deadly sins. Seven patterns of life that become deeply entrenched and can close down our heart. And we're pairing them with seven life-giving practices. Practices which can train our hearts to be where they're supposed to be. We know deep down that materialism and greed will never give us life, but we can, God can give us things to train us in order to begin to actually live differently. And here's what I mean by that. This book, which we highly recommend to you, The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg, one of the, the premises of his book is this phrase, training, not trying. Trying is, I realize greed's not a good thing. See, you knew that when I started I I realize greed's not a good thing, so I'm going to try to be better. I am. I'm going to try to be better today. I'm going to try to give more. I'm going to try to care more. I'm going to try to be better today. Willpower only gets you so far. Depending on how much willpower you have, it might get you a little farther. But that isn't how God designed spiritual formation and spiritual growth. He laid in place practices in order to retrain the attitude of our heart. The difference between training and trying is training says there are things that God gives me that if I put in place, little by little, I'll begin to actually be different from the inside out. And this is a, I want to quote to you a short section from John Ortberg's book, and in this Section He's actually talking about a practice of secrecy, of not lauding what we do in, in, in public. But he's he specifically in this section talking about giving. And he says this, think back to the distinction between training and trying. Activities such as prayer, fasting, and giving can be training exercises. If we give away some money, for example, we become less enslaved by it and can experience freedom and joy. If we do it secretly, we learn that it is possible to survive without saying, look at me. If we do it enough, we may gradually be freed from the inner need to let people know. We may one day find that we can do good simply because it really is the most liberating, joyful way to live. Spiritual disciplines can retrain our hearts. And I'm sorry if you don't like soccer, but it's just a perfect illustration. Wake Forest doesn't walk on the field one day and say, We should pass the ball more. We should pass the ball more. Let's pass more now. Oh, I thought you were going to be there. Oh, yeah. Wake Forest becomes that teen because they get that concept and then they practice it a lot. And when they get off, they're told, no, 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 you've got to run as if that ball is going to be played to you because the more we learn that it's going to be, you've got to keep making that run there. They'll never pass the ball to you if you don't make the run. You've got to drop it off even if they don't run because we'll never learn if you don't. If you're waiting every time, you've got to drop the ball off and trust that they'll be there. It only happens by continuous training toward the goal of what you want the team to be. It is the exact same way with our hearts Jesus wants our hearts to be free, to not be trapped. And he says, okay, I'm going to give you a practice that if you will utilize, it will begin to take hold and take your heart to where you want it to be. And that practice, quite simply, is generosity. The antidote to greed is generosity. When we unclench and give, and then we do it again, We begin to see and feel, as Ortberg says, our hearts less enslaved. We begin to realize it's true that life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions. We begin to see that as we open up our hands and experience God in the midst of it, we are understanding security and identity from him. And so it becomes a little easier the next time and then the next time, and then we venture out into some risky areas, and little by little, over time, our hearts get transformed to what they were always supposed to be. Free. Not trapped inside walls of our own making. Beautiful. Such that other people look at them and are astounded, and wonder, much like, people looking at Jesus' first followers and say, where did they get this from? Where did this come from? Josh, I hope this doesn't embarrass you. But I'm going to talk very nicely about Josh Miller. At the Home Repair... And we're funny people like that, so just anyway. At the Home Repair Blitz a few weeks ago, we were, we were going over into... To a. Camp Green, and we're working on two homes outside that and one home within it. And we needed some skilled people to give of their time and of their energy. And um, Josh Miller, who's a builder, offered his entire week. He gave his entire week in order to see people's lives redone. And there was a massive opportunity cost for him. See, Josh is currently looking for a job, and they're expecting twins. And when I talked to him afterwards, I said, I just thank you to do that. I said, wasn't that hard when you're in the midst of searching for a job to give that time? And he, he, he said to me, you know, I've done my due diligence with it. And I could sit at home all week and fret and send redundant emails and keep worrying about it, but I've got the time. I'll use it. I'll give it away. It became an opportunity to serve. And... and because of that people's lives were changed like mine because when I looked at Josh when he said that this is what I thought, I I really would like to be more like that I'd like to fret less and trust God more because I know it's actually true I know actually the idea that I need to be the provider for my life and I need to make sure nothing ever goes wrong in place of God, is absolutely foolish and silly. Sure, I want to do my due diligence in life, but where will I find my trust for security and identity? I'll find it in God, and in my relationship there. And Josh's gift that week impacted me to go, that's, yeah, that's, that's what I want to be like. That's how I want to live. I see others of you who give you know easily and freely and that has a profound impact on the people around you but I know also it has an impact on you because I've talked with people the people I know who are the biggest givers the ones who tend to give the most sacrificially are the ones that seem to almost shrug their shoulders and go well why would I want to live any other way? Because over time, and through the continual practice of giving away, they've experienced the truth that now my heart is free. They've seen the armed guards of materialism and greed start to fall to the wayside. They've seen that all of the stuff about finding my life and my identity and money doesn't work and they found what actually did. You see, here's the beauty of it. God designed us for himself to find our life in him. He intends for he to be the source for our life, and he knows that we so often get pulled away by our own fears and losses into other things, and so he designs a practice for us and teaches throughout the Bible generosity, learn to give, because he knows it will take us to the place to finally learn this is where our hearts come alive. And so my question to you is this. As you look back over the last few years, is your heart getting tighter or is it getting more open? Are you finding yourself more free or less? Is greed work? Is it helping your heart to come alive? Now flip it. And I want you to think back on a moment when you offered up something to someone else. When you gave away something that you could have sold. When you gave money towards something you believed in. When you invested money that came to you unexpectedly and you turned it around and gave it somewhere else bring back that thought. Do you remember how that felt? Do you remember that rush of freedom? That's what God wants us to learn to live our lives by. The freedom of no longer having to hoard. A freedom that realizes it's all from Him anyway. I am a steward of what God places in my hands and He places it in my hands certainly to provide for my needs certainly to experience some joy, but also certainly to learn, as I give it away, God has become first in my life and I become more alive because of it. Let's pray. Lord, we know at a pretty profound level, most of us, that greed doesn't really work but it does seem to trap us when there's scarcity and when there's plenty. And we know you've made us for more. When we think about the unbelievable gift of Jesus Christ laying down everything for us to make us free. When we think about those moments when we're living out of our fullness of our relationship with God and our status as his sons and daughters and the joy we experience there. We, we want that to be the pattern of our lives. And so, would you teach us and help us to move forward into what we know are the practical steps in order to move from death to life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And as we move into the end, the back side of our service and we, and we take the offering, see, this is one of these practical, frequent, ongoing ways to try to break the hold of money in our lives. We, we do it at Warehouse not as a duty, but as something that we believe is integral to retraining our hearts. We give to break the hold of money. We give so that God will be first in our lives. We give because as we, be, as we give, we mimic the heart of God and the world is impacted. And so as we come to this part of the service, I encourage you to see that for what it is. Is a practical moment, a ritual, a practice designed to retrain our hearts. And then as you move into the time of worship, I encourage you just to to engage in this and hear God calling you. Hear God calling you to a more abundant, more free, and more full life as you turn and place the priority on Him.